The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Let me pray. Lord, we do thank you that, that you have made us to be part of a, a church all over the earth. You have a people. You are making a people. And there will be a people from every tongue and tribe and nation drawn to worship you and enjoy you forever. And we, by grace, are a part of that. And we say thank you. Thank you for lifting up our, our hearts this morning a little bit already to think about and to praise you and to appreciate your work in the world and in our church here and in us personally. You're a good God. Your mercy is new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. We turn to your word now, Lord, and we ask you to teach us and to grow us. And particularly this morning with this passage and what we're going to look at in it, would you alert us and make us wise and um, savvy walkers through the world, people who are aware of what's going on, able to, to see the, the steps in front of us. And, and then, Lord, I pray, would you not just, not, not let your work short-circuit in us and, and produce strong walkers, but produce faithful people. Would you make us aware of the path that we walk and then grow us in faithfulness as we walk it? Grow us in, deepen us in the experience of you walking with us. Grow us in the appreciation of your fatherhood of us. We, you are your people, have a great privilege. We are children of yours. You are our father and help us to appreciate that and to understand it better. So, Father, would you this morning, would you draw us, draw our attention here, draw us together, would you teach us, would you commission your spirit now to move through the room here, ask, Lord, I ask that you would give him authority to clear our minds, to remove distraction, whether it be worries and concerns about tasks this afternoon or Voices, sounds, temperature, whatever it is, Lord, remove distractions. Cause us to deal with sin, where sin is a barrier. Enable us, Spirit of God, to focus on the Word of God here this morning and to grow. Give clarity to my words, please, Lord, and build your church. We are fortunate and blessed people. So help us to experience some of that again this morning and then as we walk out from here this week. Be good to us, your people. Bless us, honor your name. In the name of Christ and for his glory and for our good, I pray. Thank you, Lord. Amen. We turn our attention again this morning to Luke chapter 4 where we will once again consider the testing and tempting of Jesus in the wilderness. We looked at this passage first two weeks ago, 
And we did so then in its proper context, noting that it's doing something in particular in the book of Luke. It is the end of the beginning. Jesus' preparation in this gospel is ending, and he's about to embark on his personal ministry beginning even in the next passage. About to launch that. And the main issue in this passage, as we saw, particularly noting the context of the, the two passages right before it, the main issue here was the sonship of Jesus. We read in chapter 3, Jesus was baptized, and in two different ways, a, a visible spirit of God, the spirit of God in a visible way coming and alighting on Jesus, and then the audible voice from heaven declaring, this is my beloved son, with him I am well pleased. This is my son. This is the son. And then the genealogy that follows immediately after that traces the roots of Jesus back through son of, son of, son of, son of. He's the son of Adam. All the way back, he's the son of Adam, the son of God. There it is again. He is God's son. He is God's son. And then that becomes the issue in the desert. Okay, if you are God's son, that's right in the center of the temptation. If or really since you are, let, let's see what that's like. Satan tempts him in these three paradigmatic ways, these three model, that is, categories or types, which is exactly what God wanted to happen. You recall, God led him there. God took Jesus into the wilderness. Jesus wasn't suddenly, accidentally ambushed there. It was God's intention that God the Son go into the wilderness and face this for 40 days, showing that he is, in fact, the true son, the successful son. He passes the temptation, proving he is able to break Satan's power over God's people, proving that he is able to make us, then, true sons, true daughters of God. That's what we considered two weeks ago, and that was, that's the proper understanding of the passage in its context. But it's maybe helpful for us to hang out here one more week on this passage and look at it kind of from a different angle or perhaps tangentially kind of along the side of the passage and look at it a bit like reading somebody else's playbook, to use a sports analogy. If you get a copy of the other team's playbook and you, and you read it and you realize, oh, so when they, basketball, Set a screen up here. The ball's going to go over there, and there's going to be somebody running. Ah, I got it. I see. So when that happens, you know what's coming next. You see it. And you're a step ahead of the opposition. You read their playbook. Perhaps we can approach this passage with that perspective, seeing what this is, if we look at it from this, this angle, is insight into how Satan works into how he approaches us, how he is approaching us right now. We're, we're in this wandering in the wilderness on the way home already. That's where we are right now. We haven't yet reached the promised rest. We're wandering and we are being tempted at the moment, if you're aware of it or not. You're being stalked. And perhaps it's helpful to look at this and say, oh, kind of like this. I see. So we're going to look at it this way. We're going to look at it in an attempt to understand something about how temptation works, to, to analyze it, to, to see some of what's going on. 
But we also then, so I'm going to spend, I'm going to make four observations this morning, and the first three are going to be brief looks at each of the three temptations. But the fourth one, we have to come back to something else, lest we make a, a great big mistake. Lest we think in analyzing this temptation and that temptation and that temptation, oh, now I know what I am to do and what I had best get busy doing and trying very hard to do. Indeed, when you read the other team's playbook, you know this is how they're going to work, and therefore I know how I'm supposed to work, but not, this would be the big mistake, not work by myself, in and of myself. So the fourth point we're going to come back around to is critical. It's the, the revisiting of, of the passage in its context and what that means for how we are in ourselves, empowered and moved to resist temptation. So I'm going there, and if, if along the path you think, man, he's just telling us what to do, I'm going somewhere more. Not less than what to do, but more than what you are to do, if that makes sense. So, here's my main point for this morning. I'm going to state it and then read the passage. I'm not going to go back through all the details and analyze the passage like I did two weeks ago. I'm just going to read the passage and then move into my observations. But here's the main point that I'm working towards this morning. Temptation is dangerous, but also useful for mentoring us, maturing us, whichever word you like there, as true children of our good Father. Temptation is dangerous, but also useful for maturing us, mentoring us, as true children of our good father. That last part, children of a good father, is where I'm going to finish. But the bulk is going to look at the, what temptation is and how it's dangerous. Before I get to that, let me read the passage. This is Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, 
he departed from him until an opportune time. Luke chapter 4. Here's the first of my four observations. Beware the temptation to focus your life on the feeding of your appetites. Beware the temptation to focus your life on the feeding of your appetites. Draw this from, obviously, the first temptation. After 40 days of wilderness wandering without eating, Jesus was hungry. In verse 3, Satan said to him, If, since you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Obviously, obviously a strong temptation for a hungry man. And one that, when we think about it for a second, points out something important for us that recurs actually with each of the temptations, but is particularly prevalent here. This temptation is not completely off base. Why do we all get hungry when we don't eat for a while? By God's design. God designed us to give us appetite to keep reminding us of our need for nourishment from outside of us. So obviously, hunger itself, appetite itself, is not inherently bad. It's something good, something we should be thankful for. And we should think, feed hunger. By extension, we can say the same thing about all the things that we metaphorically hunger and thirst for. If you start thinking about just the word appetite and how that spreads beyond just food, it spreads across our existence, across our lives. We have appetites for, we hunger after countless things. Let me be clear on this. Our appetites, are, or you could say desires, longings, yearnings, hungering, thirsting, they all start out in some place that is good and right. Good and right. And they are often intense and strong by design, by God's design, intending to draw us onto something good, often something needed. So the problem here is not, and we have to keep this in mind because the answer then is not get away from that, do away with it, say forever no to it. The problem is not, the temptation is not, here's an appetite, feed it. Not quite. The problem is, here's an appetite, feed it like this now. That's a small point and a big one at the same time. Address hunger is not the problem. Address hunger like this now is the problem. The temptation is luring you to say or to think, I must have my needs met to live, or to live any kind of life that I actually want to live. I must have these longings fulfilled. I cannot live without it. I can't do without it any longer. I have to, I have to get this. That's the problem. Good and right things, food and drink and sexual intimacy and deep friendships and marriage and children and so on, things we were created to want, created to long for, things that are right, we have God-given drives for, we're often tempted to act to meet that longing in any way that we can, 
as soon as we can. To fill ourselves, even when God has said no, or not yet, or not like that. We feel like we need it to live. And Jesus reminds us here, no. Man does not live on bread alone. But man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. He's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 8, as we saw before. In fact, if we consider that whole sentence from Deuteronomy 8, we learn something important about this temptation. The whole sentence says, He humbled you and let you hunger. God humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know. In other words, with something that you could not have predicted, which was totally unforeseen to you. He fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. That he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Something important here, which is simple but important. You, person hungering, it's a plural you in the context, but you can think of yourself personally. You, the person hungering, is distinct from appetite. And distinct from appetite lacking. Well, that is so subtle and important. You, distinct from appetite and hungering lacking the appetite being met. You are only having, you are having a desire and a related experience to that desire. When you have that desire and the experience of lack, you don't yet know what it's for. You have the appetite and the experience of lack, you don't yet know what it's for. It might be for pressing you to go get it filled. Or it might be for the Lord to teach you to sit and wait unfulfilled. You follow that? Deuteronomy 8. I made you hunger that I might teach you not how to find food. I made you hunger that I might teach you that you don't live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. God gave them an appetite, the need for food, and he made them to experience a shortage, not for them to go meet it, but for them to sit and wait for him to meet it in a completely unexpected way, manna from heaven. All you have when you have an appetite and an experience related to it, a lack, all you have is a question. You don't have an answer yet. We have a question, and often we are tempted to answer that immediately. I want, therefore I must have, and I must go get it. Our longings, especially strong and intense ones, weak we also commonly want to 
Go get that need alleviated immediately in whatever way we can right now. Now, if, if it's not that strong of a feeling, maybe not. But if it feels good and it feels right and it feels desirable, it must be met. And the stronger it feels, the more deeply I want it, the more inclined I am to say, I'm, that is, it is so right. It wouldn't, be, it wouldn't be in me deeply if it wasn't to be had. And I should get it right now. And then in comes a temptation. And you can get it right now. And what kind of God would keep it from you? What happens there, we equate the feeling, the, the, the lack and the desire, we equate it with my identity and what I must have. And we call into question a God who says no to it. Beware the temptation to make your appetites, the things that you, you feel and you want and you long for, to make them in fact determinative, to make them in fact God. Deciding what you should do and when you should do it. The Bible says God sometimes uses an appetite and keeps it from being filled to teach us something. In this case, to teach us that life is found actually, ultimately, with Him and not in the things of the earth. Things of the earth are good. Things of the earth are not bad. But they are not ultimate. And sometimes God intentionally keeps them from us to teach us that point. Watch, beware of the temptation that arises that says, if I feel it and if I want it, I must have it now. The Bible says that we can embrace death itself, even denying all of our wishes and take up our crosses and follow the Son to death and even there find life. Which leads us to the second point, the second temptation. Before I do that, I give you a couple questions to ask yourself about the first one. Am I sensing an appetite that I'm supposed to wait on God to meet in time in some way? Is this appetite leading me away from dependence on Him and into self-dependence? Questions to ask yourself when you're trying to beware of this type of an attack. So, second, beware the temptation to pursue a kingdom of personal power and glory now. Beware the temptation to pursue a kingdom of personal power and glory now. This is the second temptation. Verse 5, the devil took him up, probably a supernatural spiritual event, it's Hard to see how he could do this all literally in time, showing him all the kingdoms of the habitable world in a moment. Showing them all of Athens and all of Rome and all of this glory in a way that was attractive to him and was a lure to him all at once in a flood. 
So he says to him, after he shows him this, to you I will give all this authority and their glory. It's in my power to give it to whoever I want to give it to. I give it to you. If you'll bow down and worship me. If you'll follow me. Become my servant. Become my son. In that moment, Jesus sees. He sees all the power and the pomp and the esteem and the privilege and the wealth and glory that a kingdom, a real, great, and awesome, proper kingdom provides. And surely something in Jesus at that moment resonated with that and he heard himself think, I was born for this. Because, again, like the first temptation, he was born for this. It's not totally wrong. In fact, there's something that's quite right about it. He was born and should have and will have all the authority and all the glory of all the kingdoms. He is to rule the world. He is to be honored above all things. He is to be respected and revered and obeyed in everything. It will be his. And with him, we, as co-heirs of his, we also will inherit the same kingdom. We saw this over the last couple of weeks as we looked at the last chapter of Revelation. There's a line there, and we will reign with him. If you're a Christian, we with Christ were born for this. To reign, to have all the authority and all of the power over all the kingdoms, to reign with Christ over the creation. We are royalty, and there's something in us that resonates with this, with this kind of an offer. That's right. The situation in which you and I, the people of God, are no longer harassed and harried and denigrated and opposed and put down and discriminated against or persecuted or made to live under evil systems and abide by foolish laws in which we no longer face even the decay of our bodies, the, the weakness and the frailty of humanity, all that gone, in other words, the kingdom come is right we pray for it and we long for it and there's something in us that says absolutely that that is a good thing it is right that i be wealthy and powerful and strong and exalted and lifted up yes not now and not in this way the temptation is always pulling at something in you that there's a you have a loop there that it hooks into because it's right in a way in a time currently we walk the Calvary road we walk a road that leads there and we can see the city from here the passages in the scripture that are given to, to enhance our, our 
esteem of that city and to imagine what it will be like to reign and to live in a place where a, a stream of living water provides healing for the nations and all the wealth and all the power of all the kings of the earth are brought in and subjected to us. We can imagine that, and it's not yet. The path that leads there is the Calvary Road, and we follow a crucified Messiah. And this time, to allude to 1 Corinthians 4, we are led along as captives on the way to the Colosseum, and we are regarded as the scum of the earth, even. We don't like that. News, you know, news. We don't like that. We want the kingdom come now. But he has ordained for us in this time, for this time, that we follow Christ outside of the city, in part to teach us and in part to declare to the world that we have here no lasting city, but we're looking for another city. We cannot bring that one here. We walk to it. The temptation, though, is to skip the way of the cross, the way of the humble laying down of our lives and the turning of the other cheek, to skip the blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be filled, and to rewrite that knowing beatitude and make it blessed are those who have no need to mourn because they are already filled. That's what we want it to say. And you can get that. There's something in us that wants the power and the glory of the kingdom now, and you can get it. If you couldn't get it, there wouldn't be any temptation in it. There'd be just sorrow and mourning. But there's temptation because you can get it. Come, follow me. I'll give that to you. He never really appears to us and has that kind of a conversation, but he does offer it to you all the time. He offers to you the respect you deserve, the power you should have, the honor that is rightly yours, the love that is appropriate. Your husband should love you like that, and your wife should respect you like that. You know how you get that? Let me tell you how you get that. Come, follow me. I'll get it for you. Maybe, maybe, you find yourself, unwittingly, walking away from the Calvary road onto the road of pride and the road of getting the power and the authority that you want when you enter into argument and contention with your spouse. Something so simple as that. Maybe you find it when you enter into manipulation or intimidation. Maybe you find it... The folk, my, my point here, I list a couple of little things there, simple things. My point is not to draw your attention to, oh, I shouldn't argue with my spouse. I shouldn't... 
like carry on some power play with my wife to get her to do what I want, to respect me and to, to put me in this position of honor. My, my point is not to draw our attention to the thing, the behavior, the, the power play, the argument, the struggle. My point in this whole discussion here is to alert you to what's going on perhaps beneath. Why you want it. And that you want something that's right. Indeed, you should long to be respected and long to be honored and long to be loved. That's appropriate. When the kingdom comes, you will know that. It's just not here yet. What he calls you to now is the path of, yes, she should respect me. Yes, he should love me. And what I'm called to do is lay down my life and consider the needs of the other as of greater importance than myself and to humble myself like Christ to death, even death on a cross, that one day he is exalted and every knee bows and every tongue confesses Lord. The path there leads through humility and suffering and denial of self and a taking up of cross and death. Beware. I'm not trying to focus you on the sin. I'm trying to focus you on what drives the sin, what's beneath it, what you want, what you're being lured to chase down and act so as to get. A kingdom of power and glory that is right, that just isn't yet. Theologically, sometimes we see it in... in in official theologies that say we should be healthy and powerful and strong. We should, in this life, experience all those blessings. We're sons of the king after all. Theologically, that's not right. We're following Christ right now. We're following him to Calvary. But personally, whenever you seek to manipulate or to control a situation to advance your own stock or your own reputation to make yourself honored and respected beware what could be going on there is that you're falling prey to the temptation to make a kingdom of personal power and glory now thirdly Beware the temptation to demand a present sign of God's approval of you. Beware the temptation to demand a present sign of God's approval of you. From the third temptation, verse 9, he took him to Jerusalem. Again, probably a supernatural, spiritual situation. It's hard to imagine how they went from the wilderness to the temple physically, to the top of the temple with nobody noticing. Supernaturally, spiritually, in some way, he takes him to the point of this temple, the, the, the top point of the temple, and the point is, this is God's house where God is uniquely present, and you, his son, surely, as he has said in the scriptures, you, the righteous son, he will protect, he will uphold. So make him prove it. Make him show it. Jump. Throw yourself down from here and obligate God to show who he is and who you are in relationship to him. 
Now, notice, this is not a temptation for Jesus to make himself safe and secure. He already is. He already is the Son, already is fully approved of by God. God already said that. This is my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. God, the God who does not lie, already said that. The point of the temptation is, sure doesn't look like it. Looks to me like you've been abandoned in the wilderness, left without anything to eat. For how long? For forever. How much longer do you think you can go on without any food and water? We don't know if you had any water, but how long do you think you can go on there? All alone, vulnerable, weak. As I look at it, your life looks terrible. Looks like you're cursed. So if you're the son, really, if you're the son, let, let's double check that. Throw yourself down from here and obligate your father to come out and show, no, actually, I will protect you. I, I, am, I do have you. I'll catch you up and keep you from crashing into the ground. I kind of wonder. Is that true? Let's see. Prove it. Make him prove it. And if it doesn't happen, if I was you, I'd look around at your terrible life and I would doubt God and I would doubt your standing before him. That's the heart of the temptation there. We often want the very same thing. We can't make a sign come from God, but often in a way in our hearts we demand it. We say, I, I want you to. You must show me. Maybe we try to do something that we feel will reassure us. So, so check yourself on this. Do you, do you find yourself saying, I want to know that I'm all right. That I'm, that I'm doing the right thing. That I am right before God. That I'm approved of by God. And I judge that by numbers. Whether it be numbers in the checkbook or numbers in attendance in a congregation. I judge it by public opinion and approval. I judge it by my health. I judge it by my success in my chosen field. I judge it by how well-behaved my kids are. I judge it by things that I can see with my eyes. And so I'll do everything I can to attract numbers and to keep up attendance and make my kids behave and I will avoid honest feedback and I will avoid everything that threatens me and makes me feel unsure of myself and I won't ask questions that might indict me and I will avoid situations where I might fail and I will suppress negative news and I don't want people to be honest about my weaknesses. In short, are you attempting to, to shape your world so that it all looks like from the outside, as you look at what your experiences are, I am a blessed person. I'm a right person. I'm a together person. God has me. God is with me. Look.
Maybe you do or don't do some of those things in an attempt to prop up yourself in your own eyes. But ultimately, though, this is about don't put the Lord your God to the test. And so it's, it's not really about what we do. Mostly it's about what we try to coerce God into doing. What we are restless and even angry about when he just won't do. When God doesn't give us some present evidence of his favor and approval. We do not like trusting God's promises when the evidence around us appears otherwise. So we want God to change the evidence around us always. This is very subtle because you kind of got to look into your heart. Oftentimes, we can't actually do anything about it, but you, you look into your heart and you notice the restlessness and the unease and even the frustration. The, the kind of the, it, in my heart, it feels like this. It feels like, like fingers closing around and, and tightening because I want and just can't get it to happen. And I, I wish, shouldn't God, why does God do this? And I question in my mind, perhaps you question in your mind, wondering, if, oh, even unaware of where this thought even comes from, if he loved me, then he would. So why won't he? Do you find yourself asking that? If he cared about me, if he was alert to me, sometimes worrying, sometimes pouting, sometimes angry, sometimes intensely worried because the circumstances out here don't seem to be establishing, proving to me or to those who might be watching that God actually does approve, that God actually is with, that I do actually stand in his favor. Instead, you look at it, it doesn't look like that to me. It looks like you're under a curse. It looks like you've been abandoned or forgotten. So God, do something. Why don't you already? Sometimes it's anger, sometimes it's fear and frustration. How many people have turned away from God when he did not answer that prayer for healing and the loved one died, when he didn't intervene to stop the car wreck, when he didn't stop a Supreme Court decision? How many people? Beware the temptation to judge God's approval of you and to evaluate him based on what you can see instead of what he has written. Instead of what he has written. We judge God's approval and our standing and our security and our acceptance so often by what we can see with our eyes and can label as blessing. He has written and he has told us who we are and who he is. But our hearts are extremely fickle. 
and extremely prone to wander into unbelief. And at the mention of unbelief, that's what takes us to consider the final point. Really, I think you could say that up to this point, that's all been a long and belabored introduction. I think it's helpful. You'll be the judge of that for your own lives, but I think it's helpful to be alert to, to beware of what you are already facing. Not what you might encounter at some point or other. This is how the enemy who does currently exist, how he's playing with you. Now, he personally might not be playing with you, but he has powers enhanced by the world that are latching on to things that are already in your heart and that are actually half true, as we've seen. It's helpful to be, to be aware of and to beware those things and helpful to watch for them and helpful to know about the enemy and to think about the fact that you are facing temptation. But of course, what we really want to know is how to resist the temptation attacks are coming our way. And that's the final and the main point that ends up looping us back around to the context in which the passage sits. So here's the, here's the last point. Resist all such temptations by remembering and reveling in God's fatherhood of you. Resist all such temptations by remembering and reveling in God's fatherhood of you. And really you could kind of put the whole sermon from the first time around right here. Jesus' triumph in the wilderness shows that he is the true son and means then there is a gospel. He is the righteous one. He keeps all of God's commandments and then when he goes to the cross, he has righteousness then to impute, to credit to us and he on the cross then is qualified to take our sin and our waywardness unto himself. And so, as was talked about earlier, we are identified with Christ, we are crucified with him, we are raised with him as sons. And you have a father who will never leave you nor forsake you. That is of immense importance in all of these temptations. It is the thing that Jesus has in his mind, is remembering, placed in him by his communion with the Holy Spirit, where this begins, verse 1, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. And you'll recall we said that is more than just led into the wilderness, it's led by the Spirit in the wilderness. Jesus is walking through these temptations filled with the Spirit, in the power of the Spirit. What does the Spirit do? The Spirit is first and foremost communicating to him the presence of God. Jesus faces the challenge and remembers, I am a son with a father. 
I have no idea how, but he will feed me. I am an heir of a kingdom, and I don't know when, but I will receive the honor and the glory that is due me. I have a father who holds me in his hands and will not let me fall. I can't see it with my eyes now, but I am certain of it because I know who he is. This is how Jesus faces these temptations and how we are to face these temptations. By remembering that you have a father. Not by saying, ultimately by saying, man, I understand how the temptations work and I understand what I shouldn't do and therefore I better, I better be alert to and watch out for and be strenuous in. There is usefulness in that, which is why we talked about it. But ultimately at the end, that's all introduction. Say the main point is, child, you have a father who will not leave you nor forsake you, and who is the answer to every question raised. But really? It doesn't seem like it. It seems like you've been cursed and left and abandoned. No, I haven't. What are you talking about? I have a father. This father. And that point, the awareness in you, you have a father who meets your needs, who cares for you and carries you and will deliver you to glory. That is the purpose, the raising of awareness, comprehension, remembering, and reveling. That is the purpose of God in the temptations. Yes, God has a purpose in the temptations. Remember Deuteronomy 8. I led you into the wilderness, and I made you to hunger. How did they get there? God. That I might teach you. What's going on? God's teaching them. I thought Satan was tempting them. No, yeah, well, no. Yeah. God has a purpose. God's brought them there to teach them. Wait, 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 and I'll feed you with something you never even heard of. You couldn't have guessed that. You don't even know what it is. We'll call it manna, which means, what is that? But I fed you, didn't I? And I gave you water out of a rock, didn't I? Wait. I gave you appetites, and I gave you needs, and I gave you desires, and I gave you longings, and I filled them. Not contrary to me, but with me, and ultimately with me. I gave you longings and desires to teach you that you need something from outside of you. And I meet those with all of my good provisions, all the things that I made, and ultimately the greatest thing outside of you that fills you is me. Wait for me. And I gave you a longing for rest and peace and glory and honor. I promise to bring it. And I've given you the down payment of such power now, haven't I? The spirit who lives in you. And I carry you along as a father gently carrying a baby, as a shepherd carrying tender lambs. I carry you along. He brings us into temptations to teach us that. And as the rest of that context in Deuteronomy 8 says, he does that because he knows where we live and he knows our frame and he knows that People are inclined to think, look what I made with my own hands. 
And so he brings us into a place where we have nothing made with our own hands to teach us, look at my fathering of you. Look what I give. Look what I give. Look what I give. We fight temptation ultimately not by being alert to the tactics of the enemy and, and not by like having particular scripture passages memorized as if they're lucky charms. We fight temptation ultimately by remembering that I have a father and reveling in the goodness of this father. God is engaged with us always to do us good and to grow us up, and sometimes that means he wisely brings hardship our way. But you know who he is. You know who he is, not because of what you can see in this moment with your eyes, but you know ultimately who he is because of what he has written and because of what he has done, where he hung and the hole out of which he came. He died on a cross and the tomb is empty. The kingdom is coming. Rest in it. All I'm doing here at the end is pressing something onto you that you already know, but you don't know. What's really going on in all the temptations is doubt about the fatherhood of God. So what I'm calling you to and pleading with you and praying for the Spirit to do is to cause you to remember and to believe you have a Father and to revel in that fact. You have a good Father. You have a gracious Father who, while you were yet sinners, sent His Son to die for you. And how will we not also along with Him give you everything that you need? including the kingdom come, safely delivered to it. Bless God. And even we can be thankful in temptations because while they are dangerous, they are useful for this task. God teaching us. God maturing us. God informing us in new and in deeper ways of what it means for him to be a father to us and us to be his children. Let me pray. Lord, sometimes we are tempted in ways that we are completely unaware of, are blind to, Sometimes we are tempted in ways that are very clear and very frightening to us. As I pray for my brothers and sisters here today, where, wherever they are on that spectrum, I pray, Father, would you draw near to them and rescue your children, your children. Rescue them, please not by giving them more willpower. Though there is nothing wrong with the fruit of discipline, self-control. 
not even just by giving them more wisdom to alert them to how they are being approached and what kind of traps lie out there, though wisdom is good. I pray, Lord, that you would draw near and you would rescue your children by opening their, our eyes to the profound truth that you are our Father. You do not overlook us and you have not forgotten us and you will never leave us. You are in control. You are wise. You are strong and you are good. You have our lives in your hands. Would you please impress that upon us and give us faith to believe it? believe it more than what we feel and more than what we can see and more than what we fear. Thank you, Father. Save your people from attack and from temptation. Feed us in whatever ways we need and carry us home to the kingdom that is coming. I pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.